This morning I want to uh, call on an old friend to be here for us, and that, that friend is the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is the being who is dedicated to awakening and helping others in general and to awaken specifically. And I'm inviting us to look at the figure of the Bodhisattva in part because I think of the uh, times that uh, we, in a sense, we've entered into further in the last few weeks, um, that this is a, a time of um, accelerating uh, crises, really. And um, nothing less than a contemporary version of this great bodhisattva being will do it. <clears throat> so I want to, want to talk about the bodhisattva and talk about the uh, sort of contemporary version of the bodhisattva. And <clears throat> I've brought in in front here, uh, a friend uh, uh, who I sometimes call Kwani, who's uh, Kwan Yin, who is also here. Kwan Yin is the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And uh, we are all Bodhisattvas, uh, at least Bodhisattvas in training. Okay, so I'm hoping to uh, further convince you of that uh, importance of training and vision and listening for one's calling, because this is all about what am I called to do at this time. And it's going to be very much a question of each of us listening to our own inner voice and what's responding in a deep way to have a sense, sense of calling. <clears throat> so... I think I don't need to talk so much about the crises. And again, I think with the uh, upcoming administration, it's likely that all of these crises which have been there and would have, and are, would have been there whatever the outcome of the election, that they've accelerated. They, they will have accelerated. And I think of um, four main systemic challenges in our world. The first is ecological, particularly climate disruption. The second is the uh, creation of the other, you know, and we would list uh, a number of ways uh, that uh, certain people are increasingly being seen as the other. Of course, that's gone on for a long time and it's there in every society, but we can particularly think of the way that... uh, in our contemporary uh, time, uh, there are seem to be certain groups particularly at risk who probably comprise 75% of the population, uh, and especially when we include women among that, in that list of people who in some ways uh, are <coughs> threatened. Uh, of course, Muslims, Latinos... African-Americans, LGBT, you know, in the uh, campaigns, there were expressions which could be said to be threatening to all these groups, as well as handicapped, as well as uh, people of Jewish background. There were, there were materials that really 
seem to put many groups uh, at, at risk. That's the second issue. The third issue is that of economic equality, which was uh, you know, uh, also profound background for the election. And <clears throat> the uh, lack of real uh, shift in the last years and the general decline for the mass of the population uh, since the late 1970s in terms of uh, uh, income. <clears throat> and the fourth area is that of international instability, which is still a, uh, a great systemic threat, the lack of means to resolve conflicts uh, peacefully, and the sort of the disempowerment of the UN and so forth. These are, these are uh, all large systemic issues whose uh, and the, the, the danger in each of those areas will likely accelerate in the next few years, as we know. And so very much uh, um, a need to ask, what, what do I feel called to do? You know, and one way that I find sometimes helpful is to do a thought experiment and to place oneself back in other times in the past which were times of crisis. You know, what would I have done as a white person in the South in the 1950s and 60s? And some of you may have actually been in that situation, that very situation, but what would I have done? How would I have responded? How, being the person I am now, would I have wanted to respond? Would I have wanted to would I have felt called to um, speak up, take leadership, and so forth, to act more, more fully? What would have I done in this country um, at the time of some of our wars? What would I have done in relation to Vietnam, for example, or Central America, times in the past? What would I have done at the time of slavery? or at the time of the internment of the Japanese. What would I have done? Would I have wanted to act? How would I have connected that with my practice? What would I have done if I was um, a Christian living in Germany in the 1930s? What would I have done? Probably, yeah, some of these are extreme situations, right? What would I have done then? How would I uh, live with integrity? And those thought experiments can be helpful for considering the present time. How might someone from the future look at us right now? In Joanna Macy's work, sometimes one imagines imagines a figure from the, the future. And you can do this in your meditation. Someone from... 50 years from now, you know, assuming that we've made it through. How would you talk to that person? What would that being be wanting you to do? It's an interesting reflection, isn't it? How, How would I respond? You can even right now just imagine a being from 50 years from now. Just take a minute Imagine that you're in dialogue with someone 50 years from now. 
One way to reflect like that is for, to the person to say, you really did it. You responded to these crises. How did you do it? What would be your response? <clears throat> Just reflect for a minute or two. When you talk to that being, what part of you actually got activated? You know, you're talking to this person, this being, and maybe it's uh, five years from now. And how did, how did, what's the dialogue like for 10 years from now? How did you do it? What did you call on? What resources? <clears throat> And there's a way, it seems, in which uh, something new is being called out of us, that some of the ways that we've been living, you know, as individuals in this culture, uh, with patterns of consumption and so forth, something else is being called for. And what I want to suggest is that there's a vision that's actually been there in many traditions of this connection of inner practices, which we've all been cultivating without a response, which many of us have also in many ways been cultivating, and to somehow bring that uh, uh, cultivation of inner practices uh, connect it yet more fully without a response, and then somehow connect it in various ways to responding to these larger issues. And again, always helpful to remember that uh, suggestion by Joanna Macy that when things change in a large way, the change has many different uh, aspects. So this isn't saying everyone needs to be on the front line all the time, right? That's really not how change occurs. But remember, her suggestion is that change occurs partly by what she calls holding actions to prevent further damage, which is the traditional province of activism, but also the change in the core institutions, as well as the inner change of consciousness. And so institutions, we could mean education, you know, uh, psychotherapy, how one relates to one's body, parenting, economics, agriculture, um, all of your professions, all of your work, that's part of it, right? <clears throat> um, and then the shift in consciousness, which corresponds to that. So this call for involvement, again, is calling to see these three aspects as interconnected, but everyone's not being said, always be on the front lines. That's not what's being asked for. It's asked for that calling of how can I use my gifts my creativity, my own vision. That's a really important point. You know, when I've 
Because sometimes one talks to people and says, oh, God, I, um, <clears throat> I'm not an activist, or, you know, uh, or, um, <clears throat> you know, or the activists think, you know, sometimes I need a break, you know. And, and what I find in talking about these three aspects, particularly when I've talked with groups of people who are already dedicated to this, there's a lot of relief. Huh. It's more like I find my place, but I, but I uh, as it were, up the ante, <clears throat> to use a metaphor for something which I never in, engage in. <laughs> is, that, is that from gambling or betting? Yeah, anyway. Um, but you got the idea. You know, it's to... Uh, uh, <clears throat> th- these sort of stereotypical phrases are coming to my mind, the put your pedal to the metal. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. So it's to see how, you know, what, and it's really to see what is alive in me that's, that's calling me. That's partly, my talk this morning is partly wanting to um, awaken that in myself and all of us. And then I think what I'm going to do next week is to continue, and I may do a little bit of, I may do a kind of a ritual, I think I probably will, that will uh, invite this further. Be part of, part of next, next time's session, assuming the traffic's not too bad. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's this powerful vision, which I think may have been there very much for many of us, which is that of connecting our inner work with responding to the needs of the world and to the, to the needs of others in, in our own way. And I know that's been <clears throat> very crucial for me for a long time. I think I was raised more to be a kind of an activist. You know, that my parents were quite active. Uh, you know, I've talked about that at times. They went to the 1963 March on Washington. You know, were very active in issues related to racism and foreign policy and so forth. Uh, my father had been in the service in World War II and stayed in the uh, Air Force Reserve, but he used to uh, go to his active duty in the 1960s with sort of anti-war buttons, which was a risk, (laughs) you know. Uh, And so I was raised that way. The only time I ever went to summer camp, they sent me to a camp in New York City which was kind of like an activist camp and spent time in Greenwich Village and met anarchists, you know, and all those. You know, uh, spent a lot of time in Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant and so forth. And the camp was, uh, had a lot of people who were fresh from the line, front lines of the civil rights movement. So, and then I went to college. This was the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, and it was a very um, powerful time. Right? And again, it was, uh, um, it was more the vocation was that of being an activist. But I also started to see as I studied further and looked further that there were many ways in which I thought that the activists uh, had had certain problems, that they, um, we, it was often seemed like it was really the, the ends justify the means. People didn't treat each other very well. It wasn't very good at dealing with disagreements, often very mean-spirited, and I started to wonder, is this the uh, revolution I want to be part of, right? And 
you know, I was also um, studying a lot of psychology and started to have a sense of inner practices and started to be aware of mystical traditions, initially Western and then then Asian. And a little little while past that time, started to meditate regularly, started going to retreats, started getting amazed by the power of retreats, started doing uh, what over about four years was probably, you know, quite a, a number of retreats. I think I averaged uh, about, uh, I don't know, quite a number of retreats every year for four years and lived at, a, at the sister center of Spirit Rock, IMS, for I think about nine or ten months, you know, and practicing about ten hours a day and uh, really got into it, <laughs> you know. For quite a number of months, and and but the and, and so it really and then when I would start to talk, uh, try to connect the two, many of my meditator friends didn't seem so interested in the social dimension, and they said, "Okay, the real action is the inner work, right?" And so there seemed to be a split, and it was confusing at times. And my old activist friends didn't seem at all interested to hear what I had been discovering in meditation. And my meditative friends uh, didn't seem that interested in looking at the larger issues, right? How many have had some version of that split in your own life, right? It was, um, <clears throat> it was a challenge, right? I think I only resolved that challenge by moving to California. <laughs> Which is <clears throat> a way to deal with all problems. <laughs> except possibly those of housing, jobs, and transportation. <laughs> uh, and I also, I also started to connect and find that that vision was there in other traditions and was quite, quite powerful, you know, that there's uh, this sense of across traditions of a being who's dedicated to in, in, in different ways, in different traditions, to go deep inwardly, but also respond outwardly. Very powerful vision. So I got to know about that in terms of indigenous traditions. You know, the figure of the shaman has this deep interiority, this deep uh, sense of cultivating solitude and vision, but it's all for the sake of the community. It's all for the sake of the community and the sense of keeping the world in balance. <clears throat> I thought I'd read a, a passage from a indigenous shaman named Amatsua who lived in, in uh, the area that we call Mexico. In ancient times, when balance was lost on the planet, a great flood came to destroy all that which was on the earth so the world could be reborn. A similar balance seems to be occurring in this generation. We have forgotten our life source, the sun and the sacred sea, the blessed land, the sky, and all things of nature. Unless we remember quickly what our lives are about, unless we celebrate through ceremony and prayer, we will again face destruction. That was actually in the 1970s. And there's that sense of this connection of this uh, ability to go deep 
in an inward way and to know in a deep way the connection with the earth and to, again, cultivate different kinds of vision, but to all have it be for the sake of the harmony of the community and the harmony of the connection with the earth. And we find it also in, in other traditions. And we find the uh, figure of the Jewish prophet, who I think is very much a similar figure, you know, that the, the uh, especially dedicated to uh, bring about justice, but to do so from a place, again, of deep attunement with the sacred in that tradition, to be able to carry out the vocation that's called uh, tikkun olam, many of you know that term, to repair the world as the deep vocation. This is from uh, the prophet Isaiah, who, who, as you may remember, calls for a world beyond war. These will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into sickles. Nation will not lift sword against nation. There will be no more training for war. Again, from, you know, well over 2,500 years ago, we have that sense. We have that sense of a being who takes that vocation. We call these the prophets, you know. And um, Abraham Joshua Heschel there's one who wrote a wonderful uh, work on the prophets, who was one of the great figures of the last century, who marched with Dr. King, was a refugee from, from the Nazis, and spoke very eloquently of this connection of inner and outer. He said that the prophet is the one who hears the silent sigh of human anguish. <clears throat> That's particularly attuned to listen uh, for suffering. To suffering. And <clears throat> again, this is from, uh, from Isaiah, uh, who says, um, self-interest is everywhere. He said, this was again 20, over 2,500 years ago, everyone is greedy for profit. They chase after bribes. Right? and trying to bring about, trying to call for justice. We find this also clear, very clearly in the life and work of Jesus. And again, the Jewish and Christian tradition have had so many people who have followed with that vision of the prophet. Uh, Jesus uh, said very explicitly, I have come to complete the work of the prophets. He was in that, he saw himself in that, in that vocation. And he announced a new kind of world based in reconciliation, the love of enemies, and the ending of an eye for an eye, right? And some in a very deep vision. Uh, the, the writer and teacher Andrew Harvey said this about Jesus. The life and work of Jesus combines the deepest mystical absorption in the divine with the most absolute and selfless work for justice and compassion in the world. Uh, so we have the, these figures. And, and again, the, the prophetic tradition has been the inspiration for uh, generations of people following that vocation. We can think of people like uh, Dorothy Day, uh, Dr. King, 
the liberation theologians of uh, particularly of uh, Latin America, but also of Asia and North America. And all of these figures have, have uh, brought out this vision and said, within our traditions, this is a possibility. And we also um, find this very much, obviously, in people like Gandhi, you know, in, again, coming more from Hindu tradition. <clears throat> he said, I could not be le- leading a religious life unless I identified myself with the whole of humanity, and that I could not do unless I took part in politics. The whole gamut of human activities today is an indivisible whole. You cannot divide social, economic, political, and purely religious work into watertight compartments. Again, there was a vision in his work of the uh, nonviolent, engaged uh, person who would take it as a spiritual practice. So we have this vision, and there I think we could... could also give uh, examples of that in Islamic tradition or in, in a number of other traditions. You have this vision of someone who leads a deeply sacred life, really dedicated to go deeply, to cultivate the inner peace, equanimity, wisdom, and love, and who acts outwardly. You know? And in our uh, tradition, we have the figure of the bodhisattva, who again, I think, is is uh, very uh, deep. Can be deep inspiration for what's called for now. That the the bodhisattva in the Buddhist tradition is someone again who is dedicated to helping others, but also to connecting that with the process of awakening. There's a there's a beautiful book that I've been reading uh, called A Garland of Jewels by a a uh, Tibetan teacher who died, I think, about 1912, named Maifam. It's, called, it's, it's um, A Garland of Jewels. It's a book about the eight great bodhisattvas. And I thought I'd read one passage from this. This is, this is about uh, one of the great bodhisattvas, this is Manjushri. And these are the, what we might call the archetypal bodhisattvas. Kuan Yin is an archetypal bodhisattva. These are beings who, you know, t- uh, we could say are on an archetypal level. They're not human beings per se, but they uh, in some ways can come to people in visions and really influence people, and people can relate to them, much as many people relate to Kuan Yin, I think especially. <clears throat> so this is, um, this is Manjushri who, who made this vow, I think as a, as a human being, <clears throat> and then later kind of moved into the archetypal realm, if you follow that metaphysics. Okay, okay so this is, this is from Man, uh, the Manjushri to Bees vow. <clears throat> from now on, until awakening, I call the Buddhas of the Ten Directions to witness. I will not give rise to greed, hatred, and delusion. I will abandon all wrongdoing. I will emulate the Buddhas through immaculate morality. I do not wish to attain Buddhahood quickly. Until the end of time, I will engage in deeds for the benefit of every sentient being. I will purify immeasurable and innumerable Buddha realms. May my name be heard and proclaimed through the ten directions. That was a vow which set him up for a considerable amount of work for some time. 
arguably still happening now. So this, that's Manjushri. <clears throat> so we have this uh, vision of the Bodhisattva. I think the Bodhisattva is particularly called for now. I think that there's a way in which we've um, reached a certain uh, point where the traditional uh, activist that's been dominant, the sort of non-spiritually grounded activist, we're, we're perceiving the limits of that role. And something else is being called for in which we connect the inner and the outer. We, we really look for the bodhisattvas of our times or the prophets of our times. And we can see that the traditional model of the activist, if we want to speak in that way, um, has limitations that are met by the figure of the bodhisattva. For example, we can see that, uh, I think, for the person who is going to be addressing these larger issues skillfully, that person needs a fair amount of inner work. You need, one needs inner work to have long-term balance, right? To have equanimity, to uh, not be turning on one's friends and colleagues. You know, I did a workshop at a conference, it was about 10 years ago, on the theme of spiritual activism. And I think my workshop was on defining what the curriculum is for a spiritually-based activist. And I asked the people there, you know, what's the biggest issue you deal with? And they said, we fight among each other and we don't treat each other well. And we have conflict and anger among ourselves that makes us more dysfunctional, right? And that, they said, was, that was like the, that was what was on their minds, right? And so the inner practices don't get rid of conflict and they don't get rid of difficult emotions, but they make them workable. And so I think we're looking for a model of um, activism where people can be skillful with difficult emotions, where, they can, where we can be skillful with speech, with working with conflict. We can see how the outer problems are also related to inner conditions. Sometimes activists, the model has been, I see the problems, therefore the problem is out there, and I criticize it, I complain it, I blame people, and it's not like I've internalized it. It's not like the problem is in there. But I think the actual situation is more like what you find with the 9x yellow pages. On the uh, cover of the 9x yellow pages, it says, if it's out there, it's in here. <laughs> okay. um, but I think there's the, it captures a deep truth that, you know, I think we're, we're seeing more, you know, that some things, think of something like racism. Racism is internalized by everyone, Right? including people who are oppressed in that way. We know that more and more with the research on implicit bias, that, that, that we internalize these deep oppressive models. Many of us know this, whether it's for gender or sexual orientation and so forth. This isn't, the problem's not just out there, but it's also in here. We internalize, <clears throat> we internalize the models of the society. And I think we can see also how the, you know, how the, some of the systemic problems of the world are also related to our behavior, how we act, 
how our minds are. So we need these inner practices. And we also can see that a lot of the ways that spirituality has been framed in the last, let's say, 30 or 40 years also has really major limits, right? That spirituality, for many people, has been a way of finding more peace, more quiet, more inner wisdom for one's circle of friends and family, and um, not always so much shared with the larger world, not always cognizant of the larger world. A private spirituality, when the world's burning, is based on privilege. Right? And so that's problematic as well. You can see, so the models of activism, I think, are problematic. The models of uh, spirituality, if, if it's overly private, that's not to say that they're not cycles. They're very important times when we need to go more inwardly, take retreats and so forth. I think that's crucial. So I'm not saying uh, not to have that private uh, practice. Very, very crucial. But it needs to be connected ultimately with the outward time. You know, some of the people I know who are doing beautiful work, for example, in Thailand, I think of people who are, one person I know of is the abbot of a monastery who does deep practice for six months and then works on ecological issues for six months every year. Quite a model, isn't it, you know, of that combination. Anyone want to follow that model? <laughs> and, and, of course... It's nice, uh, <clears throat> as a monk, of course, his needs are taken care of, so he doesn't have to work. But I, I, when I first met him, I said, wow, that is quite a combination. I like that. Right? And so uh, maybe we can be creative about finding something like that. So, so there's, there's a way, I, you, get, you get my drift, that there's something new is being called for, right? The prevailing models of activism, we can see their limits, the prevailing models of spirituality, we can see their limits. You know? And you know, as, as well, we know that also connected with the prevailing models of activism historically has been a distrust of religion and spirituality. That's part of it also. You know? And that's changing some, but it's still there. Right? Historically, uh, much of the social justice movements of the last few centuries was critical of the collaboration or the complicity of mainstream religion with oppression that was seen in different countries, Europe, South America, etc. Right? And, and so historically, there's been a way that uh, there's been a split between social justice movements and religion or spirituality, a lot of distrust. You know, Marx, religion is the opium of the people. Remember that? That's often misunderstood. He actually wasn't saying opium was a totally bad thing. You know, it was actually, he said, at least it gave people some peace. <laughs> but it was a, a, not, not a mature solution, he was saying. <clears throat> and so, can you see how some of the structures uh, and models of the past are ready for change? Something new is being called into being. <clears throat> Enter the bodhisattva. <clears throat> and the, the figure of the bodhisattva, as well as the resonance with those models and other traditions. <clears throat> so maybe a few words about the bodhisattva, then I think I'll open things up. And again, I'm going to continue next week, and I think I'm going to do a, maybe a, I will do a ritual 
that will be you know, uh, interactive and that will let each of us uh, see what's calling each of us. That's my, that's my intention. <clears throat> this is from the Bodhisattva vow in the Theravada tradition, because you find the Bodhisattva uh, throughout Buddhist tradition. Crossed, I will cross others. Freed, I will free others. Tamed, which is a term for um, cutting through greed, hatred, and delusion. Tamed, I would tame others. Calmed, I would calm others. Comforted, I would comfort others. May I awaken to supreme perfect awakening and enlightenment and bring well-being and happiness to all beings. That's a vow that's taken. Here's one in the Mahayana tradition from, from Zen. Some of you probably know this. Living beings are infinite. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. And from, from a famous text from the 8th century, Shantideva, which was probably the uh, single most well-known text about the Bodhisattva called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Sort of like Bodhisattva Hood for Dummies from the 8th century. Anyone who wants to write that book, go ahead. We, we don't have it, do we? No such book exists. Uh, may I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. <clears throat> and so forth. And the, traditionally, the bodhisattva trained, much as in what we train in, the bodhisattva uh, trains in the, what are called the paramis or the paramitas, the virtues or the perfections, these core qualities. So what is the training of the bodhisattva? Traditionally, it's to train in generosity, to train in uh, ethics, to train in wisdom, to train in loving kindness, to train in patience, to train in being truthful and so forth. And similarly in Mahayana tradition, very similar list. <clears throat> generosity, being ethical, patience, uh, energy, bodhisattva has a lot of, it, lot of energy, right? <clears throat> You're going to save all beings. You've got to <clears throat> keep the energy going. Uh, meditation and so forth. And, um, and so there are these qualities. I think that the contemporary bodhisattva needs some further trainings, right? The contemporary bodhisattva needs to add some further trainings to this, needs to be trained in um, being skillful in speech and communication, skillful with conflict, skillful with spiritually grounded social analysis to see the world with, through, through the lens of the Dharma. How do you see the world in that way? You know, and my uh, colleague David Loy has really been pioneering in this way. You know, can you analyze the institutions in terms of how much they encourage greed, hatred, or delusion, how much they encourage clear seeing and kindness. Right? That's interesting, isn't it? What might alternative institutions look like in all these areas? Again, that's part of that vision. I think the contemporary bodhisattva needs to be pretty trained with what we call diversity work. Be really doing a lot of internal work and external work 
in relation to race, gender, sexual orientation, and so forth, and be, be skilled in that area. Needs to be able to, um, in many cases, uh, be a good community organizer, like Mr. Obama, and to have the have those capacities. So those are, those are some of them. But I think some other trainings are necessary for the uh, for the contemporary bodhisattva to really uh, fully be empowered. So I think I want to end just by naming a few qualities that this bodhisattva has, and this can be partly a guide for us. Um, the bodhisattva needs to be able to uh, touch freedom and still engage in the world. So this is where one's practice comes in. One needs to know the essential freedom of our being. The bodhisattva needs to go deeply and touch deeply who we are and to know very deeply that our core is that of love wisdom, clarity, generosity. And increasingly have no doubt about that. And that permits this uh, spirit to act in the world, right? And to also have uh, great endurance and equanimity for the ups and downs. <clears throat> so in other words, the bodhisattva really needs to be in touch with this deep vision of who we are. You know? You can think of the way that Dr. King expressed that in terms of the sense of the dream, right? Or, or that sense of really being in touch with the dream, the vision, you know, the last speech of his life, having got, he said, I've gone to the mountaintop, right? There's a way in which he was saying, you know, I have touched that vision and stayed, and stayed in touch with it. <clears throat> the bodhisattva is skillful in being with difficulties and is willing to open to suffering, can be with difficult emotions, has the capacities to do that, and is willing to go into difficult situations, is willing to take risks, is willing to stand up for other people. Hmm. Did you see that article a few days ago about in New York uh, Muslim and Jewish women coming together? And, uh, and the Jewish woman vowing, if there is a registry for Muslims, we will register. Right? What if we had something like that, a vow at people at Spirit Rock? <laughs> How many of you would register? Right? This is what a bodhisattva does, right? A bodhisattva has the vision of those who are suffering. So for some of that, some of us, that means maybe we need to go out more of our comfort zones and touch base more with suffering, right? Maybe that's that, when you are honest with yourself, maybe that's part of what's calling you, that we need to be in touch with what's happening and where there is difficulty and suffering, and to keep training in the capacities to be skillful when there's difficulty or suffering, right? That's our training here. We have to keep being skillful, you know? And... um, You know, I sometimes joke when there are either I or others have really difficult situations, I sometimes say, this is advanced training. Right? Can you interpret real big difficulties as advanced training? Right? And smaller or medium difficulties as ordinary training. 
right? That's a different perspective, isn't it? And maybe our whole time now is one in which there's a lot of advanced training. We don't know exactly, but it, it could be that way. <clears throat> so again, the bodhisattva knows how to be skillful, has had this training, combines this more outward training, which I think many of us are trying to clarify and define. You know, I think, you know, um, <clears throat> I was... Um, I, I helped set up a program here at Spirit Rock, which we called the Path of Engagement. The original title that I wanted was the Bodhisattva School. <laughs> you know, and so my father would always ask when we were doing the planning process, how's the BS doing? <laughs> <laughs> so we need a lot of BS these days, don't we? Okay, that could be on the promotional literature. <laughs> Okay, um, so we need we need these we need these uh, trainings. We need to train ourselves. We need to get really good with these areas of speech, communication, working with conflict, being out in the world, being being with suffering, working with internalized oppression, internalized privilege, uh, finding ways to uh, live more ecologically being activists for mass transportation, whatever, whatever, whatever it is to really work with that. <clears throat> and uh, Bodhisattva also knows the cycles to stay balanced, that we, need, we have these inner and outer times. There's a real importance of not simply being outward all the time, nor uh, for most of us being inward all the time. There's a balance of going inwardly, finding that rhythm, and then coming more outwardly. There's a tremendous uh, role for retreats, for um, <clears throat> inward time, time of rebalancing. The old model of activism, again, in many ways led to burnout. That's not helpful. You know, burnout or acting out in some way when, when one's not internally balanced. <clears throat> and I, I'm, set, I'm a little critical of what I'm calling the traditional model, but of course there's also in that tremendous levels of integrity and commitment, right? It's that, it's that maybe there wasn't another model. You know, I mean, Dr. King had a different model, but for, for many, a more secular social justice model often had these dangers, often has had these dangers. <clears throat> And so maybe I'll, I'll finish with this, that there's a way in which the bodhisattva knows the mysterious nature of change and sometimes the paradoxical nature of change, that sometimes large change comes about quite quickly. You know, think of the end of the Soviet Union, the fall of apartheid, Sometimes when things are ready, things can change quite quickly. It's mysterious. One has to keep going and be careful of uh, narratives of things aren't working. Things are myster- very mysterious. And the bodhisattva, having trained for a long time, basically just is committed to keeping on going. There's a line, I think, from Suzuki Roshi who says... Even if the sun should rise in the west, the bodhisattva has only one direction. So there's some sort of 
sense of no matter what happens, this is the direction. And there can be a sense of not knowing and mystery. <clears throat> Maybe I'll close with a, a quote from, um, one, this is one of my favorite quotes, from Vandana Shiva, who is a kind of bodhisattva. Anyone know her work? Uh, uh, Indian, uh, uh, Asian Indian. And I think she has a degree as a physicist, actually, but she's been an ecological activist, uh, at first with uh, uh, questioning the uh, large dams in India, but very much a teacher and activist for the last 30, 40 years, um, connecting many, many issues. And this is, this is what she said in, in response to an interview question. The question was, Every time I've heard you speak or met you, you've had so much energy, not only intellectual energy, but personal or spiritual energy. I'm just wondering what keeps you so alive. So here are the secrets. Take notes. Well, it's always a mystery. So she agrees. It's always a mystery, but because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged. But this much I know. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness no matter how tough the situation is. That's like kind of that only one direction, no matter what's happening. And that's, again, grounded in this deep sense of inner truth that one increasingly touches. <clears throat> I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. And I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. It's an interesting teaching. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make, and you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. And what that's meaning is that you can act and just whatever happens, happens, but you have a fullness of action without grasping at the results. That's, that's a little translation. <clears throat> You want it to lead to a better world and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me always to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescriptions and demands. I think that we owe... Each other, what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. <clears throat> Yay. So the invitation is for each of us to listen deeply for what's there in ourselves. And I hope that the, these words related to the bodhisattva may have uh, resonated some in terms of each of us asking, how am I called? You know, maybe, what am I, what, how am I called to what's next for me? Given my gifts, given my inner uh, aspirations, and given uh, the needs around me and the needs of the world, how am I called? How am I called further? So it's really an invitation to listen very deeply, to listen deeply and do nothing 
in order at the right time to do something. So, thank you. Let me invite any reflections or questions. Again, I'm going to follow this up next time, probably with a, a, short, a, much, a considerably shorter talk and then a practice to help us to uh, explore that inner voice, <clears throat> that, inner, that inner sense of calling. <clears throat> Please. What happened to the idea of the Bodhisattva school? Yeah. Well, I implemented it for 15 years. Oh. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, we did the program. We did a program. Okay. And uh, for, for certain complex reasons, my own cycle at the end of that 15 years, because I had worked with several other programs that were training programs. I worked with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship with a program called the BASE program. We did about 30 training programs, uh, most of them six months some of them longer. I didn't do all 30, but I was on the uh, group that was overseeing it. And I did about five of them. And then I did uh, uh, a more academic program for nine years called Socially Engaged Spirituality, which was an interfaith program where we studied Gandhi and King and the Jewish prophets and Jesus and shamans and so forth. We did that for nine years. And then I did the uh, Path of Engagement program for one cycle, and then at a certain point, uh, just personally, I was called to do deeper inner work. And so the vision was still there, but I, I and there were there some other factors which were there, but, uh, but you know, recently I've said, hmm, it looks like it's time. <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, I have, have a lot of curriculum. I have a lot of curriculum that we developed for, for those trainings. <clears throat> How many of you would be interested in such trainings? No? Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. Looks, yep. Uh-oh, and good. <laughs> I have to listen to my own inner voice, right? I have to practice what I preach, so to speak. Okay, but thank you. So that's, but the um, other people are doing such trainings now. You know, I, th- I know uh, Mushi Mikeda Nash, or Ikeda, is doing trainings at the EBMC, and but um, yeah, I could see doing something here, and so it's definitely on my horizon. And this conversation is supportive of that reflection. <clears throat> Other uh, thoughts and questions, reflections, please. Should we use? Yes, let's use the microphone. This is more logistical. When you say next time, is that next week? Or is that the next time you teach? Oh. Which... Yeah, thank you. Uh, this is one of the easiest questions to answer that I've had for a while. Uh, next time means next week. Yeah, thank you. You know, all the conditions being right. <laughs> agree with your assessment of the times yeah. and that it for me I have to kind of go what would the Bodhisattva do because 
it's really easy to get into a lot of infighting yeah. in terms of tactics and um for example yesterday i got into kind of a fight with sustainable fairfax which should be you know kind of easy going but we got into kind of a debate around the yeah. pipe the pipeline and it, you know, i find it it really brings up well you're supposed to be my friend and we're arguing about you know how to move forward and i and i have to go to what would the bodhisattva do and my first reaction is well i'm going to start arguing with everybody and i don't think that's helpful yeah so i backed off um but it is it's it's i always find from in my life is the bodhisattva is something to shoot for because you know it's it's something i may not accomplish yeah. but it's certainly an ideal to to try to attain and i'm not a monastic so i'm kind of you know floating yeah. around here yeah so so great questions really pointing to several uh concerns several issues uh one of them is i think we can contemplate ourselves as bodhisattvas in training for one thing so um, bodhisattva approach traditionally has always been a path of training and so we are in that path wherever we are at, you know, however close to the beginning whatever still needs to be done that doesn't matter it's more like a, a vision of a direction and there is a very concrete path of training like I say I think we're still very much trying to clarify what does that path look like in a contemporary way. We know what the traditional path looks like. It's uh, <clears throat> not so different from what we've been doing with our inner practices here. Um, and so the uh, contemporary path needs to be clarified, but that is a path of practice, and we are where we are. We develop in, you know, I named, you know, there traditionally are... Uh, often ten traditional qualities that the bodhisattva develops like generosity, patience, loving kindness, etc. And I named probably six or eight contemporary areas of training that would supplement it. And that, that, those um, supplementary areas of training I think points part of to how I would respond to your question about the challenges in the group. And it relates very much to what I said about the workshop that I did for at a spiritual activism conference where they reported that their own difficulties with others in their group or maybe between groups were kind of most on their mind as the issues that were hardest, right? And, um, and so for me what it points to is developing more and more a model where if you're in a group then hopefully at some point early on, the group gets communication training. The group gets training in how to work skillfully with conflict and implements that so that the meeting itself becomes a kind of spiritual practice. doesn't guarantee anything, but it changes it from being more or less, okay, we just have a meeting and there's no intentionality about how we treat each other, right? There's maybe intentionality about an agenda, but not so much about how we treat each other. And so this vision would change that, would say, 
would increasingly have a model, okay, if we want to be a group that does ongoing work, we need to have some further capacities. Or we're just going to you know, lead to burnout, conflict, or you know, power struggles, or the usual, right? Uh, one of my favorite uh, teachers, um, Tibetan teacher who died, named Dogo Kensa Rinpoche, who died about uh, 25 years ago, he said, until inner negativities are transformed, there will always be outer conflict. And so, um, but that's, so, so that's where this uh, vision of, what, of the bodhisattva is crucial because, you know, maybe in a short time, people engaging in sustainable Fairfax would say, if we're going to really do a good job at this, we have to be bodhisattvas, which means training. You know, and that's, that's a lot, right? That's a lot, but that's, that's a vision there. You know, I think, again, some groups may have that vision. You know, we've had that vision when I worked a lot with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, <clears throat> that the, you know, people doing certain work need to have certain capacities and have it as ongoing training. <clears throat> yeah. I think, uh, last one, yeah, please. It's occurring to me that perhaps a lot of it comes down to motivation and when people are motivated by fear and anger, it's different than being motivated by love. That's great. Yeah, very, very beautiful point um, that uh, a core aspect of our practice is checking our motivation and checking our intention as well as having skills and capacities to work with difficult emotions like fear, anger, and not have them dominate us, right? Especially in their more unconscious manifestations. Maybe dominate is, is a good word. So they can still sometimes be there, but they get transformed. Um, when I, when I research the, the book that I have out there, The Engaged Spiritual Life, uh, I have a chapter there on anger. And I researched uh, sort of spiritually grounded activism, particularly in the West, people like Dorothy Day, Gandhi, Dr. King. And for all of them, the transformation of anger was, was central. So, um, so I think there are, for me, like several points that come up with your question. One of them is, do we have the capacity to be skillful with difficult emotions and difficult thoughts? Well, our practice, our core practice here of mindfulness, the heart practices, clearly gives us ways to work skillfully with that so they're not dominating. And then, can I check my intention? Can I know where I'm coming from? Very, very central. So, again, and then to see that if I am acting with unprocessed fear and anger, it's going to look very different and may not be very skillful. <clears throat> Wonderful questions. To be continued. And again, we'll, uh, I'll keep some uh, continuity, do a ritual, and also have some, um, probably a little bit further content as well. So let's just sit and bring to mind your own 
sense of what you leave our session with? Any intention or clarity or insight? Then we, we close in traditional way offering the fruits and benefits of our mourning to ourselves, to each other, and then beyond the boundaries of this hall to all other beings. In that sense, we offer the benefits and fruits of our time here to all beings, which always includes us. Thank you, and uh, to be continued. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.